Lord Jesus, your faithfulness to us is indeed great. And you have provided for us absolutely everything we need. And in every circumstance, you have always worked for our good. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning and help us to really believe that and to trust that so that we can give more of our lives away to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who's a pastor, and he was complaining about his church. I never do that. I just want you to know. <laughs> he was complaining because the people in his church were all arguing about various things, music and whatnot. They were criticizing his sermons. One woman had spent 30 minutes yelling at him because she found a typo in the church bulletin. And, she wa- and he was complaining about all of this. And I listened for a while very sympathetically. And finally I said, well, is there anything good happening in your church? And he said, well, yeah, the youth group has grown from 5 to 50 in the last two months. And all of their parents are now coming to church. I guess that's good. And I said, let me get this straight. You're having a revival in your church and you're complaining? And he said, well, if you put it that way, it doesn't sound very good. His problem was that he could not see all the good things that God was doing because of a few negative things, and so he complained. Now, I don't want to be too hard on him because I do the same thing. Maybe you do too. In fact, if complaining were ever turned into an Olympic sport, I'm pretty sure I could at least get the bronze. And this is an embarrassing personality trait because in the scheme of things, I don't have much to complain about. I mean, I've got this great job in this amazing church filled with people who I am daily growing to love. I have a wonderful wife, two wonderful kids, and one on the way any minute now. I have a really nice house in Bellevue. I mean, you can see why I'm so miserable, right? My squeal point is embarrassingly low. But I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. In fact, I'm pretty sure some of you do the same thing. We complain. When things go wrong, from the trivial to the big, we complain. And we say, why is this happening? This isn't fair. Where's God? And what amazes me about the Apostle Paul is that he never does that. He gets shipwrecked. He gets thrown into prison. He gets beaten. And through it all, one word stands out in his letter to the Philippians. Rejoice. Rejoice. He says it over and over again, twice in the passage we read this morning. Rejoice. Paul is just always filled with joy, even when he gets thrown into prison after faithfully following God. Why? What gives him such a great attitude? Why is this man smiling? Paul gives one reason, and it's this. He says because he knows that no matter what happens to him, God will use it for good to make Jesus more real in his life and in the world around him. It's just like we heard this morning from Homer. In all that adversity, God is working for good to make Jesus more well-known. It doesn't matter if our relationships are falling apart, if our career is on the rocks, even if we're in jail, just like Paul. God will use it for good to make Jesus more real in your life and in the world around us. And not just in spite of the adversity we face, but sometimes even because of the adversity we face, Jesus will become more real. 
There's an amazing irony in this passage that we just read, where the Romans throw Paul, God's number one preacher, into jail, hoping to stop the spread of the gospel. But the joke God plays on Rome is that only causes the gospel to spread to the prison guards and from there all the way to Caesar's house. That is, the very thing that was meant to stop the spread of the gospel causes it to grow. The gospel thrives not in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but because of Paul's imprisonment. Doesn't God have a great sense of humor? You see this everywhere. Historically, the church thrives when it's being persecuted. Personally, our faith is often strongest in times of crisis. And what that proves is that God must be real. Because the only way to explain all that good stuff coming out of bad stuff is there must be a God behind it all making it happen. That's why you get this funny line in verse 14 where Paul says, Because of my chains, other people have been empowered to speak the word of God more boldly. Come again? Because Paul gets thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, everyone else wants to preach the gospel because that looked like so much fun? But that's the invincibility of the gospel. God can use anything that attempts to stop his good purposes to advance them. At a church I worked at a long time ago, a woman wandered in during one of the services, and her life was a mess. She was having trouble in her marriage. She'd just been laid off. And she wasn't a Christian, but this trouble in her marriage had motivated her to go to church, hoping to hear a word of hope. The problem was she ended up sitting next to a drunk person who had also wandered in off the street. And he was making all kinds of noise so she could hardly hear anything. And to top it off, she was sitting behind a pillar and she could hardly see a thing. But the fact that there was someone next to her who looked like he was having as hard a time as she was made her feel at home. And the little bits of the sermon she could hear got her kind of curious. And so afterwards she went up and started talking to the pastor and ended up giving her life to Christ. Now, as a pastor, that story kind of horrifies me because it seems like there's so much there working against God's good purposes. I mean, the chaos in her life, the chaos in the church at the time. I mean, if someone wanders in off the street, I want everything to be perfect. You know, as a pastor, I want them to find the perfect parking spot really close. You know, I want them to find a perfect front row seat, unless, of course, they don't like the front row, then a perfect middle seat. You know, and of course I want them to hear every scintillating word of the perfect sermon. (laughs) And then, if everything is just perfect, then maybe God can do something good. But the good news about Jesus is such potent stuff that even behind a pillar with every other word incomprehensible and a drunk person distracting you and your life in chaos and a mess, God can use all of that for good and to motivate her to discover Christ. That's how powerful Jesus is. What Paul is saying is that if we know Jesus, God will work through every rotten circumstance to help us know him better, and that gives us joy. Now, that's comforting, isn't it? That's comforting. However, there's also a little bit of an uncomfortable challenge in this as well. Because if the full power of Jesus is seen most clearly in adversity, (laughs) well then... Maybe we will never know the full power of Jesus and the joy he brings unless we're willing to face a little bit of adversity for his sake. The truth is, we experience God most powerfully when we take risks that put us so far out on a limb that only God can hold us up. Again, just like Homer, he's taking this huge risk and he sees God. I have a friend who was a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. 
but he spent a lot of his time mentoring college students. And one year he decided to go on a ski retreat with the college group so that he could be with the students. The problem was he had a very important meeting that Monday morning with a major company in the valley to do a multi-million dollar deal. But he went on the ski weekend anyway, knowing full well he wouldn't get much sleep and might show up Monday morning all groggy and also knowing that winter weather in Tahoe is unpredictable. Well, the worst happened. He got snowed in on Sunday night and he had to miss the multi-million dollar meeting thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd have panicked. In fact, I panicked for him. And I remember saying, is this going to cost you a lot of money? And he said, well, maybe not. Maybe? What do you mean maybe? That's not good enough. And he said, don't worry about it, Scott. It's okay because you know what? It is a privilege for me to be here and see God working in these students' lives. I wouldn't be anywhere else in the world. Now, he took a risk to see God and he faced some adversity because of it. But by offering his time, he also saw God come alive in the students. The students saw a person who cared more about them than a million-dollar meeting. They got a living example of what it meant to put Jesus first and everything else second. Through his adversity, we were able to see God at work in this man. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can't know God unless we're absolutely miserable. And I'm not trying to say that God is going to go make you suffer so that you can grow. No, I mean, the point of the passage here is joy. But what I am saying is that if we're living the Christian life, if we're taking risks to follow Christ, to share our faith, to reach out to others, well then, from time to time, we will face some adversity. But we'll also see Jesus show up in ways we'll never see him if all we do is sit in these pews. As I've said before, God is not interested in making us happy. He's interested in making us holy and whole. And when we're holy and whole, that brings joy. And joy is different than happiness. Happiness is based on what's happening around us. Happiness, happening, they have the same root word. But joy comes only from God, and it's eternal. I mean, just look at the Bible. Is there one happy person in that book? I mean, think about it. Circumstantially, not so much. Happy, no. I mean, you know, they've got challenges and problems, but there are a lot of joy-filled people in that book who have seen God work in some amazing ways. I mean, Moses is my hero in this. I mean, 40 years wandering through the desert with cranky, complaining people trying to find the promised land. Moses, we don't have enough water. Moses, we don't like the manna. Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. Oy vey! I mean... Go find your own promised land. But he got to see an ocean divide in two. And he got to see the finger of God write the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. How cool is that? Was Moses happy? Circumstantially, maybe not. Did he have joy? You bet he did. Paul's point is this. Adversity doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. Adversity doesn't mean we're being punished for something. It's not something we need to be afraid of. Adversity is just an opportunity to see God at work orchestrating good from evil. I have a friend whose dad was an inventor. And he invented an agricultural product and then went into business with a friend of his to sell this product. And the company was very successful. But then my friend's dad decided that he wanted to devote his whole time to research and development. So he turned over the business part to his partner. Well, what the partner did was he ended up cheating my friend's dad out of his half of the company. 
then fired him from the company that sold his product and that he started. And then after he was fired, he had a stroke. And after that, the only job he could get was driving a truck, which is a fine job. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that that's not what he loved to do. He was a trained scientist. He was 60 years old, driving a truck with no prospects for a new career. That's pretty bad. But in the ironic choreography of God, he ended up volunteering to teach Sunday school to fill all the excess time he had. And what he discovered was that that was his calling. He loves it. He loves the kids. He loves teaching the Bible. And he says teaching Sunday school has given him way more joy than all the companies and PhDs and inventions he'd ever been a part of. And now he says that was the best thing that ever happened to him because without that, he never would have found his calling in life. Now, he had a lot of adversity, but God used it for good. And it all served to help Jesus become more real in his life because he got to see Jesus using him and in the lives of the kids he teaches because he's opening up the Bible to them. All of that brought him joy. So what about you? What's the adversity that you're facing right now at work, at home, in your family? Can you have faith that at some point God will use it for good to help you see Jesus more clearly and that will bring you joy? Or on the other side of the coin, what adversity might you be avoiding right now because you're afraid of the discomfort that might come from stepping out in faith? To be more open about your faith at work or, or to start a neighborhood Bible study or, or to invest in the lives of some kids or a coworker. What adversity might you be avoiding but in avoiding it, what amazing miracle are you never going to see because you're too afraid to see it? You see, there's no adversity, no pain, no crisis so negative that God can't make it positive again. It's what we call the infinite yes of God. That our pain, our problems, our despair, even our disobedience can be made to serve God's good purposes. In fact, do you know that the reason Paul is in jail in the first place is because he disobeyed God? In Acts 21, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the disciples, tells Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul ignores it and goes to Jerusalem anyway, and the result is he gets arrested. Even apostles make mistakes. Paul said no to God. But God made a yes out of it by using that to spread the gospel to Rome. The Romans said no to God by trying to kill Paul, but God made a yes out of it by using that to convert the palace guard. Our pain, our crises, our disobedience, they all say no to God, but God turns them back into a yes by using them to help us know him better. And we don't see this anywhere more clearly and more profoundly than at the cross, where as a race we said a big no to God by putting him to death. And he turned that into the biggest yes of all by using that as the event that saves us and then raised Jesus from the dead. It's what theologians call Felix culpa, the fortunate fall. The idea that even the fall of humanity into sin, the, even the crucifixion is fortunate because out of those terrible things, we got Jesus, who showed us that God loves us enough to die for us, a fact we never would have known had it not been for our sin. The fortunate fall, the good catastrophe, the compellingly beautiful irony found only in Jesus Christ that something as obscene as the fall of humanity into sin or the crucifixion or being thrown into prison or losing a job or facing a marriage problem or dealing with failing health or being mocked for being a Christian, anything negative, anything frightening can be made the most positive, fortunate thing in the world because more miraculous than God's ability to create a world and life 
is his ability to recreate them when we have ruined them. It's called redemption. At the end of Paradise Lost, a long poem by John Milton about the fall of humanity, Adam gets a glimpse of all of history. And he sees all the pain and the suffering, the wars and the diseases that his one act of disobedience has caused. And he almost collapses in despair. But then God shows him the crucifixion and the resurrection. And suddenly Adam has joy. And he exclaims, O goodness infinite, O goodness immense, that all this good of evil shall produce. And evil turn to good more wonderful than that which first brought forth light out of darkness. I don't know where you are today. What pain you brought here, what crisis you're facing, what risks you may be afraid to take. I can promise you this, though, that we belong to a God who has a wonderfully ironic sense of humor. And he delights in taking the very worst things we face and using them for good so that in the end, you will end up praising him for the very thing that burdens you today. Just like Paul does in this passage. Oh, goodness infinite. Oh, goodness immense that all this good of evil shall produce. That's the God we serve. Lord Jesus, thank you that in all circumstances you work for good. Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust that so that we can take risks for you, so that we can rejoice like Paul no matter what we face. And Lord, we bring to you today all of our burdens, our health problems, our family problems, our financial problems. And Lord, we ask that you would be at work bringing good from them so that somehow we can rejoice knowing that you are king and knowing that all things are under your control and that you are sovereign. Do this for us and we'll be grateful people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.